Our sermon passage this morning is 2 Corinthians 5:11 through 6:13, which you can find on page 966 of the Church Bibles. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuaded others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, Widen your hearts also. Have you uh, ever been in a situation where you expected someone to stand up for you and they didn't? I remember a time when I first went on staff uh, as, a, as, a, as a pastor at a church back in the early 2000s. Uh, I was green, new to the gig, and I'd been tasked with preaching uh, on the following Sunday evening. It was intimidating. There was going to be 75 pastors in town for a training event. They would all be present at the Sunday evening service. They were going to hear my sermon. 
To make matters worse, this church had a regular Sunday evening sort of review of everything that had happened that day, and these 75 pastors were going to be invited there to give their feedback on my first sort of feeble attempt at a sermon. So I was nervous, to say the least. Make matters worse than that, the passage that I'd been assigned was one that dealt with a particularly sensitive issue, an issue that's difficult to discuss in public. So that week, I went to the lead pastor of the church. I asked for his advice on how to negotiate this sensitive matter in the text. He was in the office with a mutual friend of ours. He gave me some very specific advice that I followed to the exact letter in my Sunday evening sermon. I preached my sermon, careful to follow the pastor's instructions on dealing with this sensitive issue, not wanting to make any kind of misstep in my first sort of official sermon as a staff member of the church. Later that night, when it came time to review the sermon, we went around the room. Everyone was sharing their comments and their input. For the most part, everyone was polite, encouraging. But we got about halfway through the evaluation process. One of the people in attendance uh, commented that he was really upset with the way I talked about this sensitive issue. He said, I just thought it was really unwise what you said and really unhelpful. I was taken back, but I thought, I'm covered, right? The lead pastor, he's going to step in and defend me. He's going to explain that I was simply following his instructions. But to my surprise, nothing. And as almost always happens in this situation, the criticism starts to snowball. Right? Once somebody voices an objection, everybody else piles on. So now everyone, as we go around the room, is just crushing my sermon. Right? And it's particularly the way I spoke about this one issue. And the pastor remained silent. I figured, well, he's going to let everybody say their piece. And then when it gets around to him, he's going to explain that I was just following his instructions. So I tried to take the criticism as graciously as I could. I assumed that, uh, in fact, I would be vindicated in the end. And so when everyone was done sort of crushing my sermon and it got back to the lead pastor, he simply said, yeah, I think you're right. I probably wouldn't have said it that way. <laughs> and started to move the conversation on to the next topic. Now, remember, I told you a mutual friend had witnessed the conversation and he was here that night and he interrupted the lead pastor and said, hold on, you told him to say that. And the lead pastor said, did I? <laughs> well, that was a mistake and we moved on. Now, in the, big deal, in, the big, in the long run, not a big deal, right? But here I am, probably almost two decades later, and I still remember that sense of expecting someone to step in and defend me, and they didn't. Our passage from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that was harboring some of his harshest critics. Uh, there were some in the church at Corinth who objected to seemingly everything about Paul, right? His personal appearance his weakness, his lack of charm and eloquence. They objected to his decision to support himself uh, by making tents in the city. They criticized his change of travel plans. It seems from verse 13 of, of, chapter, 15, of chapter 5 that uh, Shelby Joe just read for us that some of his critics were even claiming that he was out of his mind, right? that he was perhaps too emotional, too passionate, too single-minded. And so as we've seen throughout this letter, Paul is put in a position of having to defend himself, to defend his ministry. He has to commend himself to this church that he planted. If you remember back when we were considering the beginning of chapter 3 some months ago, we said this idea of commending is really important in 2 Corinthians. 
And so in verse 12 of our passage for this morning, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. He says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. See, Paul's saying he doesn't want to have to commend himself to the church yet again. Instead, what he wants to do is simply point out things that they already knew, truths about his ministry that they should be able to use to defend him, that they should be able to use to answer his critics and opponents. You can see Paul expects that the church should be defending him against these opponents. He says that these opponents are those who look on outward appearances rather than on what's in his heart. Paul's quick to concede in other places that his outward appearance isn't very much, but here in our passage for this morning, he's going to tell us about the heart of his ministry. On the outside, Paul might not seem impressive, but if you look closely, his work is characterized by a heart of gospel love and integrity. So he says there in verse 11 of chapter 5, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Paul begins with the idea of knowing the fear of the Lord. This is pretty clearly referring back to where we left off last week. If you remember in chapter 5, verse 10, Paul reminds us that we will all one day face the judgment seat of Christ. And so now he says that his ministry is conducted in light of that future reality, right? Knowing the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is an important idea in the Bible. It's not necessarily fear in the sense of abject terror, but usually it points to the the awe and the reverence that the Lord is due. Paul knows that he will one day face the evaluation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he conducts himself accordingly. He conducts himself with appropriate awe and reverence. He conducts himself in the fear of the Lord. And in light of that, Paul presents his ministry here in relation to three different parties. So he presents it in relation to outsiders. So there in verse 11, Paul says that they try to persuade others, right? So in light of the fear of the Lord, right, knowing the fear of the Lord, they try to persuade others, right? Because Jesus is going to return and judge all people, Paul and his ministry team work hard to persuade others, to convince other people to believe the gospel message that they proclaim. He also presents his ministry in relationship to God there in verse 11, He says, despite everything that his opponents might say about him, Paul says, my ways are known to God. This has been a repeated theme throughout 2 Corinthians. Paul is conducting himself with integrity and honesty before the Lord. He's not ultimately worried about the judgment of any other person, but instead his eyes are focused on the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally here, Paul presents his ministry in relationship to the Corinthians themselves. He says that he hopes that what he is is known to their conscience as well. The idea, as we saw there in verse 12, is that the Corinthians should be able to defend him against his opponents, against those who would criticize him. Again, the outward appearance might not be much, but his motivations, his goals were unimpeachable. So Paul says there in verse 13, he says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. 
If we are in our right minds, it is for you. He's saying, in essence, whether or not you think he's crazy, everything that he does is based on his commitment to God and to the people of Corinth. And therefore, he shouldn't have to commend himself. Right? His life, his ministry, it's an open book. As we consider what Paul is saying in this passage, uh, what I'd like to do is take two aspects of Paul's ministry that he describes here and, and two things about the way Paul conducts himself that, that ought to commend him to the Corinthians and, and think about them. So first, let's look at the apostles' ministry of fruitful suffering. We'll see that in chapter 6, verses 3 to 10. And then second, let's look at the apostles' ministry of reconciliation. We'll see that in chapter 5, verse 14, through chapter 6, verse 2. So the apostle's ministry of fruitful suffering and his ministry of reconciliation. These are things that ought to have commended him uh, to the Corinthians. So first, his fruitful suffering. If you look there in chapter 6, starting in verse 3, we see another one of the so-called hardship lists in this letter. We saw one such description back in chapter 4. Lord willing, we're going to see a very long one uh, a bit later on in chapter 11. But the idea for Paul is that his personal suffering for the sake of the gospel, which his opponents in Corinth actually used against him, was, they used it as evidence that he was a loser, that he was a weakling. Uh, Paul actually believed that it was proof that the power of God was at work in him and through him. For Paul, his suffering for the sake of the gospel was evidence that his ministry was legitimate and God-ordained. So you see there in verse 3 of chapter 6 that, that Paul and his ministry team put no obstacle in anyone's way. That is to say, Paul made it a point to avoid missteps, to avoid mistakes that not, might needlessly cause offense. Right? The point isn't that Paul doesn't like to be criticized, but rather he wants his ministry to be found faultless. His concern was with the reception that his message would receive. Remember, Paul, he's not an egomaniac. He's not so concerned about himself and his own reputation. Rather, he understands that he was sent by the risen Lord Jesus with a message for the nations. And that's what Paul cares about. He's careful not to do anything that would put an unnecessary burden or an unnecessary obstacle between people and them receiving the gospel message. Uh, the flip side's there in the beginning of verse 4. He, he says that he is a servant of God. And not only does he avoid giving offense, but, but he and his team positively commend themselves in every way they can. He says, but as servants of God, verse 3, we, we try not to put any obstacles in anyone's way. Verse 4, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Then starting at the end of verse 4, going all the way to verse 10, Paul lists out 28 different circumstances or, or features of his ministry. The 28 things that characterize his day-to-day -day experience of, of taking the gospel out into the world, trying not to put any obstacles in people's way, trying to commend the gospel to people. We obviously don't have time to do a deep dive on all of 28 of these things, but there does seem to be a structure that organizes these lists. There at the end of verse 4 and verse 5, you have a rapid-fire list of 10 ministry hardships that attend Paul's work. So 10 ministry hardships in verse 4 and 5. The first four that he lists out are, are fairly general there in verse 4. He talks about great endurance, afflictions, hardships, 
calamities. Right? These are our broad categories of troubles. The kind of things that come to Paul's mind as he thinks about what it means to be a minister of the gospel. It means that it, he, he is required to endure a tremendous amount affliction, hardship, calamity. He, he moves on then to, to give some specific sufferings there at the beginning of verse 5, uh, things that he endured at the hands of others. He mentions beatings. We know that before Paul came to Corinth for the first time, he was badly beaten in Philippi by an angry crowd. It's very likely that when Paul showed up at Corinth, he was still bruised and battered and scarred from the beating he had received. Paul goes on to mention uh, imprisonment there in verse 5. Again, we know he was put in prison in Philippi. He would be put in prison later in Jerusalem and, and again in Rome a few years later. There in verse 5, Paul talks about riots. Now, if you read the book of Acts, riots are like casual Friday for Paul, right? Every week, Acts 13, there's a riot in Antioch. Acts 14, a crowd at Lystra stoned him. People came from Antioch to Lystra to have another riot. In Acts 17, a mob in Thessalonica tries to rip him limb from limb. Acts 18, we read that Paul's brought up on charges by an angry crowd while he's in Corinth. Acts 19, we read about a massive riot in Ephesus. Right? People were responding to the, the message of Christ. Some were becoming uh, Christians. Some couldn't care less. And other people wanted to riot and, and kill Paul. The last three items in this first section seem to deal with sort of general circumstances. If the first uh, few are kind of broad categories, then he has some specific ways that he's been sort of hurt by other people. Uh, we, we might say this last sort of few items are the normal troubles of the work. He mentions labors there in verse 5, right? Hard work. Paul is engaging unbelievers with the gospel. He's training new disciples. He's resolving disputes in the church. He's, he's raising up leaders, carrying on correspondence with all the other churches, collecting money for the poor, working to support himself as a tent maker. Right? Paul is, is working hard. He mentions sleepless nights, probably in part because there was so much work to be done. Right? We think that Paul probably sort of plied his trade as a tent maker in the evenings after he was done teaching but also probably because of the emotional toil that the churches and all of their troubles took on him. He also mentions hunger. Paul's work meant that he would often go without so that others might hear the gospel. Right? When you put it all together, this was a ministry that required, as Paul says there in verse 4, great endurance. Right? This is what we've come to expect from Paul in this letter. Right? He compares his work at another part of this letter to being led in a triumphal procession. He says it's like carrying around the death of Jesus in his body. I think it's a good reminder to us that God generally works in ways that are consistent with the pattern of the gospel of a crucified Savior. That means that God's work is often carried out in ways that bring suffering and trials things that we might try to avoid, things that we might be tempted to despise like suffering and weakness, they're often in God's economy the gateways to fruitfulness. There in verses 6 and the beginning of verse 7, you have uh, eight further descriptions here. So you had a, sort of ten things at the beginning. Now you've got eight descriptions of the manner and the means by which Paul conducts his ministry. 
So eight things, the manner and the means by which Paul conducts his ministry. There in verse six, you have four words that describe the manner in which Paul goes about his ministry. He says that he, he does this by purity. Right? The, the word that Paul uses there is usually applied to someone's motives. Right? He's talking about sincerity here. He says that he, he ministers by knowledge. When Paul uses that word in Corinthians, it's usually in reference to a personal knowledge of God. Here, Paul's saying his ministry is shaped by the relationship that he has with the Lord. He says there in verse 6, by patience. The idea here is waiting calmly for things to work out. And then by kindness. Paul's ministry is not harsh, not abusive, but it is gentle. It is concerned with the welfare of others. Those are all descriptions of the manner in which Paul conducts his ministry. Then at the end of verse 6, Paul presses into the means by which he does it. He says, by the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in truthful speech, with a conscious reliance on God's power. So again, we see genuine ministry happens in ways that are consistent with the character of God. Right? That only makes sense. If God is loving, and if God is kind and patient, and truthful, well, then his work can only be carried out in those ways, right? It's not, a, it's not a coincidence. It's not an accident that Paul is characterized by these things. That's what God sent him out to do. That, that reflects the character of the God that he serves. Paul's experience of ministry has nothing to do with the manipulative tools of the marketer or the pressure salesman. He wants to do God's work in ways that are consistent with God's character. And friends, I think that's actually really clarifying for us. Life can be confusing. It can be hard to know the best way to handle any specific situation. It's true that we're not called upon to exercise and carry out the exact same ministry that the Apostle Paul was. But it is the case that all of us who are followers of Christ are called upon to serve him in the spheres where he's given us influence, in the ways that we're able. And so Paul's example here, his description of the way he went about his work, reminds us that the work that we're called to has to be done in God's ways. The work that we're called to as a church must be conducted in ways that are consistent with God's character. So what does it look like to be a faithful mother when a child throws a tantrum? What does it mean to lead your team at work through a difficult project that has to be completed? How do you go about confronting a brother or sister who's ensnared in sin? How do we go about resolving conflicts in the church body when they arise? Those are all difficult questions. They require a lot of wisdom. But Paul reminds us here that the right answer in every circumstance is going to look like godliness, purity, Patience, kindness, genuine love, a commitment to the truth. Those things will always be the right answer. Right? Those right answers are only going to be lived out by the work of the Holy Spirit, as Paul reminds us here, in the power of God. Finally, there at the end of verse 7 through verse 10, Paul completes his list. So we've seen 18 things already, and he gives us 10 contrasts in his ministry. He says there in verse 7, he has weapons of righteousness for both his right hand and his left hand. 
And I have to say, as I was sort of initially preparing uh, and reading through and, and trying to understand this passage, my, my first impression is I have no idea what Paul's talking about there. And then I read the commentators and the scholars and the experts, and I was sort of relieved to realize they don't either. Everybody's got a sort of thought about what it might be. It might be sort of a reference to weapons of spiritual warfare like Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. But it's not clear at all what Paul's talking about. What it does seem is that the right hand and the left hand, right, in terms of thinking about armory or weaponry, would mean that he's, he's completely ready to go, right? He's, he's not under-equipped in any way. Right? Some scholars say it refers to sort of offense with your right hand and defense with your left hand. If you're, if you're right-handed, that might be the case. But the idea here is that Paul lacks for nothing uh, when it comes to the, the tools he needs for ministry. The beginning of verse 8, we see two more sets of contrasts. Uh, he says that, that he uh, ministers through honor and dishonor. He says he ministers through slander and praise. And then halfway through verse 8, he launches into another string of pairs, right? And the first part of the pair relates to a way that he might be perceived by outsiders, right? It tells us a way that, that perhaps his Jewish opponents or, or even the Roman authorities that stood against him in almost every city or even his opponents in Corinth might, might see Paul and describe him. So that's the first sort of thing that Paul mentions. And then the second part of the pairing reflects what, what Paul sees to be the truth, so there in verse 8, he says, we are treated as imposters, right? They were, they were confronted as false teachers, right, by the, by the Jewish leaders, by opponents in Corinth. But, but Paul says, we are true. In verse 9, he says, as unknown. The idea there is that they're, they're uncredentialed, obscure, unimportant, not worthy of listening to. But Paul says we are well-known, well-known to the believers at the church, well-known to those who have responded to the gospel of the Lord Jesus, well-known, most importantly, by the Lord Jesus himself. Paul's already said what we are is known to God. He goes on there to say uh, that they are constantly exposed to the possibility of death. Right? But by God's grace, they are still alive. He says they are punished there in verse 9. Right? Again, repeatedly beaten, imprisoned, stoned, lashed. But Paul says, not yet killed. Right? Not to the point of death. There in verse 10, he says, they are sorrowful over betrayals, false teachers, defectors, but always rejoicing in what the Lord's doing. He's personally poor, having nothing, yet through his ministry, he makes many spiritually rich. He has nothing, he says, that the world would envy or want, yet he spiritually possesses everything, every treasure in Christ. Right, what, a, what a stark contrast. Right, Paul sees his life, the reality of his life, as so incredibly different from the way he's perceived by other people. Imagine for a second someone invented a pair of eyeglasses. And these glasses functioned in such a way that when you put them on, everything suddenly appeared the exact opposite of how it was before. That's how the gospel seems to function for Paul. That's how the gospel seems to be meant to function in the life of a believer. It takes our normal, our natural, our instinctive perception, and it turns it on its head. So all the things that seemed important before, safety, Money, 
respect. Well, suddenly put on gospel glasses, and those things seem to be completely unimportant. They're trifles compared to the gift of salvation, the the riches of treasure that we have in heaven, the urgency of the work of spreading the gospel. The gospel, Paul is showing us here, flips our perception of everything. And so, brothers and sisters, if we embrace the gospel, we are going to have to be content to be misunderstood. We're going to have to be content to live in a world that fundamentally sees everything differently than we see it. So in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, even in our own homes and families, we're going to have to be willing to live in a world where we see things differently than everyone else. And so that means we might be labeled as bigots and hate mongers because we don't celebrate the things that the world outside sees as being so dear. That means we may be considered narrow-minded because we have to insist that there's salvation in no other name than that of the Lord Jesus. We might be ridiculed and pitied because we give our money away rather than using it to accumulate more treasure here and now. We might be considered radicals and zealots and fundamentalists because we're willing to pack up and go all over the world to make Jesus known where he isn't currently. Friends, we have to be comfortable being the object of pity, the object of scorn, being considered ignorant and old-fashioned. Paul was clearly comfortable. It was difficult, but he was clearly ready to be misunderstood for the sake of the gospel. So John Chrysostom, the 4th century church father, said this in one of his sermons. He says, people outside the church may think we are sorrowful, but in fact, we are always rejoicing. We may look poor, but in fact, we have enormous riches, both spiritual and physical. As usual, the Christian life is the exact opposite of what it appears to be on the surface. And friends, that's the truth that Paul's unpacking in the other section of our passage in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses four, verse 14 to chapter 6, verse 2. And so let's, let's move on uh, and see Paul's ministry of reconciliation, having seen his sort of fruitful suffering for the gospel. Paul's going to sort of expand this idea of perception being different than reality as he works to see all believers live for Christ, as he works to see reconciliation happen. So let's start there in chapter 5 with this second point, looking in verse 14. We read there, for the love of Christ controls us. Your translation might say constrains us. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Paul starts there in verse 14 saying that the love of Christ controls us. Right? Paul's experience of being loved by Jesus was the thing that controlled his ministry. Right? The word that Paul uses there for control has a sense of, of urgency. Right, as if Christ's love compels him to action. It also has the, the sense of constraint. Right? It limits the range of options open to him. 
Or we've already seen that. Because of Christ's love, Paul has to act, and he has to act in ways that are consistent with that love. He goes on there at the end of verse 14 to explain why it is that the love of Christ controls him. He says, because I've reached a conclusion. What is that conclusion? Well, he tells us there. He has concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So Paul says one has died for all. He repeats that. You notice there in verse 15, he repeats that again. He says he died for all. But he's speaking about the death of the Lord Jesus, the sinless son of God on the cross. And what we see here is that Jesus's death had a purpose. It had a reference point outside of himself. It was for, or we could say on behalf of others. He died for the benefit of other people. As Jesus died on the cross, he took on himself all of our sin and all of our guilt and all of our shame. He took the punishment that we deserve for all of the ways that we've rebelled against God. Right there in verse 21, Paul gives us one of the most clear and powerful and yet somehow deeply mysterious statements about what happened to Jesus at his crucifixion. Right, he says there, speaking about God the Father in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he, that is God the Father, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul tells us God the Father made him who knew no sin, that's the Lord Jesus, again, God's sinless son in human flesh, the, the one human who has lived a perfect life of obedience to God, free from any guilt, free from anything blameworthy, right? The, the image that, that Paul calls up here is the, the Old Testament practice of offering a, a spotless or unblemished animal as a sacrifice to the Lord. So God the Father takes this sinless one, the one who knew no sin, the Lord Jesus, and, and he makes him, Paul says, to be sin for us. The idea is that on the cross, Jesus acted a bit like that, that scapegoat in, in Leviticus that we read about earlier. He acted as a sin bearer for us, taking on himself every wicked thought, every evil deed, bearing the punishment and the wrath and the death that our sin deserves. Jesus on the cross became sin for us. And he did that, Paul says there in verse 21, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The death of Jesus on the cross brings about this great exchange. So that the theological term here is double imputation. Two things get imputed, or, or we might say credited. Right? Something gets imputed or credited to Jesus, and something gets imputed or credited to us. Paul's telling us here that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. On the cross, our sin, our guilt, our shame, the punishment that we deserve was imputed or credited. It was counted as if it belonged to Jesus. And in exchange... The righteousness of the one who knew no sin, the holiness of the sinless Son of God is imputed to us, credited to us. 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says here this was all for our sake. This was for you if you are in Christ. Friends, when we contemplate Jesus suffering on the cross, it was not just an exercise in God showing love sort of off into the void or in the vacuum. No, all of that suffering was for us. It was for you. The suffering that Jesus endured, if you are a Christian, was your suffering. That is your death. That is your guilt. That is your shame. He took that and gave you his righteousness as a gift so that you might only ever know the blessing and favor of God. Christian, can you see how much God loves you? That he would undertake all of this so that you could be saved from your sin and rebellion, so that you could be with him forever. Right? If you doubt for a second that God could love someone like you, well, at that moment, you're, you're ready to understand the cross. You're, you're ready to be astounded by the love of God because what we see here is the worst of who we are that the Son of God had to become sin for us at the cross. And we see God's incredible loving desire to save us. Christian, God knew exactly who you would be. He knew every sin you would commit. And he still sent his Son to die for you. God knew all of your sin, all of your weakness, all of your shame, all of your failure. And in love, he made Christ to be sin, so that you might be the righteousness of God. But there, there's more. Paul says he's concluded that, that Jesus died for us, but that's, that's not the end. He, he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. You see that at the end of verse 15. Paul calls Jesus him who for their sake died, verse 15, and was raised. Jesus didn't remain in the tomb, but three days later, he rose from the dead. And there is, Paul is telling us here, this connection, this spiritual unity between Jesus and the ones for whom he died and was raised. When Jesus died, Paul says we all died with him. Right? We're so connected to him spiritually that, that we're dead to our sins as well. And when Jesus rose from the dead... Everyone for whom he rose is now alive. Right? That's what Paul means there in verse 15 when he refers to those who live. Right? If you are in Christ, you are united to him in his death to sin. You have died to sin and its power and its penalty because Jesus became sin for you. And if you're in Christ, you are united to him in resurrection life. You are eternally spiritually alive. In the rest of this passage, it seems that Paul sees two implications for our lives that flow out of this incredible act of sacrifice on God's part, this incredible gift of a son who would become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so let me point out these two implications with the rest of the time that we have this morning. The first implication is that we should no longer live for ourselves. There in verse 15, Paul says that Jesus died so that those who live 
might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Brothers and sisters, this is an incredible statement of your identity in Christ. If you have trusted in Jesus, you have a new spiritual existence. Jesus died for you and was raised for you. And so if you've died with him, the old things that you used to hold dear are dead. You've been raised with him as well. You're now among those who live because Jesus rose for you. Right? Paul's saying you have a completely new identity. The old you is dead. The, the new you with a new spiritual identity, new desires, new priorities has taken its place. That's what Paul means there in verses 16 to 17. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul says there in verse 16, before he was in Christ, before he had this experience of dying along with Jesus, before he understood what it meant to be raised to new life with Christ, Paul said that he regarded Jesus, quote, according to the flesh. That is to say, from a, a purely human perspective, right? To him, the idea of God dying in humiliation and shame for the sins of people was ridiculous, now Paul says everything is different. He does so no longer. Now he's able to see, right, putting these gospel lenses on, he can see Jesus for who he really is, the crucified and risen Son of God. And he says now he regards other people in the same way, in a new way. He doesn't regard others according to the flesh anymore. He sees that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation, that the old person has gone and the new has come. Friends, it's hard to overstate how radical is Paul's understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. He says it's nothing less than a new creation, a new identity. Friends, this is one of the things that makes Christianity different from other world religions. So maybe you're a kid growing up in the church and you think, well, okay, Christianity sounds plausible, but how do I know that that Islam or, or Hinduism or, or Buddhism or Mormonism, how do I know Judaism? How do I know these aren't also valid paths? Maybe you're a visitor with us this morning. You're investigating Christianity and you're wondering, is there really anything unique about this religion, about this gospel? Let me, let me just point out that this is one thing that distinguishes the Christian faith from every other religion. See, being a follower of Christ is nothing less than a, a God-orchestrated transformation of your identity. It is not like joining a social club. It is not something that can be passed down to you by your parents. It's not something that a nation or a culture can enter into together. It's not something that can be coerced at the point of a knife. You, you can't be a nominal Christian. You can't be a halfway Christian. Because to be in Christ, as Paul defines it here, is to be nothing less than an entirely new spiritual reality. Right? That's how fundamental a transformation takes place when we are united to him. Right? When we are in Christ. 
The end result there in verse 15, those of us who have experienced this transformation, well, we will live differently. Paul says that he died for all, verse 15, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul says if you've been united to Christ, if you understand what it means to be to die with him and to be raised with him and to receive this new identity, you will no longer live for yourself, for your own glory, for your own ambitions, for your own comforts and your own pleasures. He says, now we live for him. Friends, that's why Paul lives the way he does. Everything we saw from chapter 6, verses 3 to 10, it only makes sense in light of what Paul says here. That's why Paul was willing to endure beatings and jails and riots and afflictions and hardships and calamities because he no longer regards Jesus the way he used to. He doesn't regard people the way that he used to. And he doesn't live for himself the way he used to. Now he says his life is controlled by the love of Christ. And if anyone is in Christ, the same thing is true of them. Paul says, we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. I think we get a sense of maybe what this looks like in another letter that Paul wrote, a letter he wrote to his protege, Titus. We read in Titus chapter 2, Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Brothers and sisters, salvation, redemption from all lawlessness, as Paul puts it there, it changes the way that we live It changes the way that we relate and posture ourselves with respect to the rest of the world. And so if you are in Christ by faith, it's worth asking yourself, are you actually living out in your daily life these things that are true of you in Christ? Does your life give evidence of a new creation, of a newness of life? Is there anything about your actions, anything about the things that your heart loves, anything about the decisions that you make and the way that you make them, the ways you spend your money, the plans that you make for retirement, the way you raise your kids, the way you love your spouse when he or she offends you, the way that you pursue friendships in the church? Is there anything in your life that you can point to and say, there. there. There is an inbreaking of new creation. Friends, Jesus died for you. He rose from you so that you might be free now to live, not for yourself, but for him. There's a way that that might sound like bad news, right? Like, okay, I get eternal life. That's good. But now I have to live for Jesus. I can't live for myself anymore. But friends, this new life is real life, right? The other thing, right, the thing you see when you take the gospel glasses off, the thing that everyone else out there sees every day, it's not real life, right? The the pleasures of sin, the accumulation of wealth, 
right? The hoarding of, of fame. It, it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't bring anything. Here, Jesus has died for you and rose for you so that you would be free, inoculated against that disease so that you might live for him. The second implication of Jesus' death for us is that we are now reconciled to God. You see that there in verse 18, the beginning of verse 19. Paul says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So here Paul gives us another perspective on salvation, and that is God is at work through Christ to reconcile us to himself. Right? Imagine that a powerful and good king rules over his land with, with justice and kindness. Right? And then imagine that the subjects of this king rebel against him. They try to throw off his rule. They try to take his kingdom for themselves. Right, that's, a, that's a fairly accurate picture of our relationship to God. Right, we've each tried to live for ourselves rather than for God. We've tried to be the king rather than the loyal subject. And so we are, as any subject in our state would be, we are estranged from him. Right, we've declared on the record our enmity against him. We have provoked his opposition to us. But what Paul's telling us here is that God, the great king, in his great love and mercy, was not content with that state of affairs. He wasn't content to simply condemn us for our treachery. Instead, Paul tells us here, through Christ, God, this great king that we've offended, is reconciling us to himself. He's taken away our guilt by making Jesus sin for us at the cross. He no longer counts our trespasses against us. He's given us good standing, sort of legal citizenship documents by giving us the, the righteousness of Jesus as a gift. And he's changed our hearts by making us a new creation. We no longer harbor a, a suicidal urge to rebel against him. But now we joyfully live as subjects of his kingdom. That's what Paul is saying that God has done here. He has reconciled us to himself. That's how Paul understands his commission, his ministry from the Lord. Remember from the outset, Paul's goal here is to get the Corinthian church to see the legitimacy of his ministry. And he says here, in light of God's reconciling work in Christ, there in verse 18, he has been given a ministry of reconciliation. Right? He, like an ambassador, he says, has been entrusted with the message of what God has done to reconcile us to himself. In verse 20, he says, he's like an ambassador from the great king, right? From the king that we have offended, the king who has done everything necessary for us to be reconciled to him, right? In the same way that an ambassador goes and he speaks on behalf of the government that sent him or her, so Paul says God is speaking through him. God is making his appeal through Paul and through his ministry team. He's calling people to be reconciled to God. And friends, that appeal is echoing down through the centuries to us today. You see there at the end of verse 20, Paul says, We implore you on behalf of Christ, 
as his authorized representatives, we implore you, we plead with you, what? Be reconciled to God. Friend, it is no small thing that you are able to hear God speak to you through this letter this morning. This is nothing less than a royal summons. Your creator, your God, your king is calling you to be reconciled to him. There in chapter 6, verse 1, Paul pleads with his readers not to receive the grace of God in vain, not to miss this opportunity to take hold of all that God is offering in Christ. There in verse 2, he drives home the urgency of this appeal with a reference to the words of the prophet Isaiah many centuries earlier. He says, therefore, he says, and then he quotes Isaiah, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. And then Paul applies it to our circumstance. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Friend, if you have not yet received the grace of God in Christ, if you have not yet laid down arms and grabbed hold of this gracious offer of reconciliation from God, right, this offer that God makes to you through the death and resurrection of his son, now is the time. Today is the day that salvation is held out to you. You aren't promised tomorrow. You aren't promised that you'll ever hear this message again. Turn from your sin today and put your trust in Christ. Take hold of the salvation that God is offering you. If you have questions about what that means, I would urge you not to delay. You can talk to the person who invited you this morning. You can talk to anybody you've seen up here. You can talk to me after the service. We would be delighted in some small way to serve as God's ambassadors, right? To, to tell you more about the reconciliation that he has achieved in Jesus. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, I think one of the best ways we can apply this passage and embrace the truth of this passage is by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. All right, let's return to the image I mentioned a moment ago of a great king, a great and just king who is reconciling rebels to himself. Right through the sacrifice of his son, this king has made it possible for us to be restored to our, to our proper place, to be considered loyal subjects, to be in his good graces, to enjoy all the privileges that come with being under his rule. And now the king has instituted a feast to remember and to celebrate what has transpired and all that that means for us. Friends, that's the Lord's Supper. Here we are invited to come and to remember the body of Christ broken for us, pictured for us in the bread, to remember the blood of Christ shed for us, pictured in the cup. And we come and we commune with the Lord Jesus, the one who was made sin for us on the cross and who was raised for our salvation. We come and we enjoy our status as reconciled subjects. It strikes me that this is one of the ways that we live for him. Remember there in verse 15, so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him 
who for our sake died and was raised. This is one of the ways we take hold of the day of salvation. We come to the table and we make this the organizing principle of our week. We proclaim our faith in Jesus. We, we get our, our gospel glasses polished and, and clarified a little bit so that when we go out into the world, we see that this is the reality that controls us, that this is the love that, that shapes everything that we do and love and say. We're reminded here that the one who became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God is pleased to, to invite us to his table. Now, a few things before we celebrate. The invitation to come to the table is, is for people who have, in Paul's words, been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. So if you're a follower of Christ, so if you're not a follower of Christ, rather, right, if you haven't received that, that salvation, if you haven't taken hold of that offer of reconciliation, if you haven't turned to Christ in faith, we'd ask you not to participate in this part of our service in terms of coming forward to take the bread and cup. Right? Ultimately, that would be a celebration of something that, that's not yet true of you. Instead, you could just stay where you are. No one's going to make a big deal. No one's going to stare at you. We'd encourage you to take time to think, to, to ponder the offer, the call that God has, has made to you this morning to be reconciled to him through the gift of his son. And if you are a follower of Christ, but you're not a member of this particular local church, we believe that the Lord's Supper is for all those who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ. And so if you've demonstrated that by obeying Christ's command to be baptized, and if you're connected in membership to another church that preaches the same gospel you've heard this morning, and you're allowed to take the Lord's Supper there, we'd be delighted if you participated with us this morning. We believe we have great unity with every church that proclaims the gospel of the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul does caution the church at Corinth in his first letter to examine themselves before they come to the table. And so we want to take a minute now to do just that. We'll have a moment of, of silent reflection and confession of sin, and then I'm going to lead us in a corporate confession of sin, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray.